0: Lord, we pray that you, would, that you would meet us here this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would just have your perfect will in us, Lord. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. You know, I, uh, the second song that Chris was singing, Reckless Love, and I just love that song. That Just that part of that the overwhelming reckless love of God seeking us out. And it's just such a I don't know, for some reason it just strikes a chord with me. I just I, I just love that chorus. In the opening chapters of Genesis, right, there's a man named Adam, right? And we find him in a garden. And we see that in that garden setting, this this man engaged Satan, right? He 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 entered into battle with Satan and he lost. And in in his defeat, came sin, came death to all humanity. And as we move into John chapter 18, we're going to see another man, a a second Adam, again engaging Satan. And I'll give you a little spoiler alert. The second Adam wins. We're going to see in the coming chapters that Jesus is victorious, defeating sin, defeating death. Bringing about salvation for lost men. Go ahead and open your Bibles to John 18, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. When Jesus had spoken these words, what words? Right? We, we've, been, we've been setting this up looking for the last few months at John chapter 13 through 17. We, we've seen the whole upper room discourse. We saw the, 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 that, that communion, that last supper initiated. We saw that after dinner stroll from Jerusalem out past the temple towards, towards the Mount of Olives. And so, so that's where we're at right now. Dinner is over. Judas has already left to betray Jesus. Jesus and the guys, they've already got up and left. They, they've left the intimacy of that, of that last Passover meal where Jesus institutes communion. And, and as we begin to break apart chapter 18, we're going to kind of see, look at this whole picture, and we're going to see some, some parallel accounts in the different Gospels, Right that's sort of the beauty of having four gospel accounts. It's all the same story but it's from four different viewpoints, right? It's four different personalities telling the story. And so we pick up little details here and there from each of the each of the different gospel accounts. Right? Matthew was a tax collector, he's basically an accountant. He's very detail-oriented. Luke is a doctor. He gives us another vantage point. He gives us some medical details. Each of the authors inserts their personality, right? They sort of insert their their flavor into the narrative. And so Jesus here and the disciples, they arrive at the Kidron Valley. And some of your, your translations will say the Brook Kidron. Now, the Kidron Valley lies to the east of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was sort of built up on a on a it says a mountain, but it's really, it's a foothill, right? For 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 us, it'd just be like a little foothill. So there's there's one little foothill hill where where Jerusalem is built, and then there's another little foothill called the Mount of Olives, the foothill of olives. And in between these two foothills, there's a little valley, and that's called the Kidron Valley. And this little stream, this little creek, this little brook flowed through the Kidron Valley. So it was called the Brook Kidron, right? And so this little creek, it flowed past the temple on its way to the Jordan River. And Josephus, the famed Jewish historian, he tells us that on one Passover, shortly after Jesus' time there were some 256,000 lambs that were slaughtered at Passover. And I don't know if you've ever hunted or if you've ever been around an animal that's butchered, but once you're cleaning an animal, a a, a lot of blood comes out, right? A tremendous amount of blood. And you can imagine how much blood would come out of 256,000, a quarter million sheep. And all that blood, it would flow out of the temple and it would flow into the brook Kidron and flow down towards the Jordan River. And so remember, Jesus, he's on the way to the Mount of Olives. And it's Passover. And they started the slaughter a couple days before Passover, right up until 3 p.m. on Passover day. So this this is the high point of all these sheep getting slaughtered. And so as Jesus steps across this little creek in the brook Kidron, you can imagine that that creek, it would have been flowing red with the blood of all these shed lambs. As Jesus passed over it, the blood of of hundreds of thousands of lambs that were slain to atone for the sins of the people would have been flowing. And undoubtedly, that would have had a deep emotional impact on Jesus because he knew what was about to happen. He knew what was going to transpire in the coming hours. He knew that, that, that... that next day, it would be his blood that was flowing. He knew that he was about to become the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. And we know from the other Gospels that this place where Jesus was heading was called Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. In Aramaic, it's Gatsami. And that Gatsami, Gethsemane, it means olive press. And that makes sense, right? It's on the mount of olives so you can imagine they call that because there's a lot of olive trees there's olive groves and so they would they would they would grow the olives there they would harvest the olives there and they would they would process them and so Gethsemane it means olive press the place where olives were were crushed and olive oil was made they would take the olives and they would Lay them on a flat surface, a flat stone, and they had a big round stone and they would push it across it and they would, they would crush these olives. And as the, as the fluid flowed out, they would collect that up and, and that was olive oil. And I'm not going to belabor the point here, but it's interesting that Jesus, on his last night, he goes to the olive press, to this place of, of crushing this place of of pressure. But but the product of that is is, is wonderful. Right? So they're there on this hillside. And it says that they enter into the garden. And and the word there in the Greek, enter in, it implies that there was a door or there was a gate that they passed through. So this Gethsemane, it's a a walled garden. It's a... Private sanctuary, it's a, it's a quiet place, right? Oftentimes, people with money, they would buy these little retreats outside of the city, a place that they could go away and get away from the hustle and bustle of the city and relax a little bit, right? It's their, it's their country home. And apparently, someone had given Jesus and the disciples permission to use this, this little private garden. And maybe they'd even given Jesus the key But Jesus and the disciples, after the Passover meal, they cross over the brook Kidron, and they walk up the hillside, and they enter into this private garden, this this retreat to get away. And now Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. All right, so we see that this is a, it's a common hangout for Jesus and the guys, this is a place that Jesus and the disciples would often go just to chill, just to relax a little bit. In fact, it says in Luke chapter 22, verse 39, describing this sort of the same, same time frame, it says that Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. So we see that Jesus went to this place fairly often. And we're going to see in a few verses that this is a place that he went for solitude and for, for prayer and for, for communion with the Father. It's a place that he went to get alone. And you might remember Matthew chapter 26. And again, it's the same situation here. Jesus and the 11, they go into the garden. And then Jesus kind of separates them and he leaves eight of them behind. And he takes Peter, James, and John with them. And they go in further to pray together. And Jesus says, hey guys, I'm really struggling. Will you pray with me? And he tells them, he says, my soul is crushed to the point of death. And again, I think he's kind of making a a, a little word play there that the disciples would have got being in, in the olive press, something that we might miss in English. But he says, hey, my soul is being crushed to the point of death. Will you guys pray with me? They say, yeah, Jesus, of course, we'd love to pray with you. few minutes in they 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 fall asleep they're sound asleep but as we see Jesus as he begins to pray and he's under such pressure and such stress it says that he begins to sweat great drops of blood and and this is a a rare medical condition that's brought on by extreme stress and it causes the the capillaries to burst and, and and blood begins to to seep into your sweat glands and Jesus, in, in the midst of this, of this agonizing prayer, he says, Father, if, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not your, my will, but your will be done. And so Jesus, we see, he's, he's really, he's wrestling over what's coming next. And, you know, he's got this, this tortures awaiting him, this, this mocking, this, this execution, this, this crucifixion, which would have been horrific. But I think even more horrific to Jesus, the sins of the entire world were about to be placed squarely upon him. For the first time in, in all of eternity, Jesus was going to have his perfect fellowship with the Father broken. And he'd be cut off. He'd be alone. And we've talked about this before. You know, on a a physical level, on an emotional level, Jesus, he didn't want to go to the cross, which is understandable, right? I mean, who would? And again, he says, Father, if if there's any other way, if there's any other way to, to save lost men, let's do that. Let's do it that way. Nevertheless, he says, Not my will, but your will be done. We see through this process where he's he's wrestling in prayer with the Lord, he comes to this place where he he, he comes into submission to the Father. He submits himself to the Lord. He says, I don't like this. This isn't what I would choose. Nevertheless, your will be done. Remember the author of Hebrew writes in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He says that Jesus endured the cross. It was shameful. He despised that. He despised all that the cross entailed. But for the joy that was set before him, he did it. What was the joy? What's that joy that was set before him? It's us it's you and I it's the church it's the salvation of lost men that's what drove Jesus to the cross and so right as, as Jesus is is finishing up this prayer right as the disciples are there laying next to him asleep Judas shows up he knew the place well scripture says Jesus had gone there many times to pray And he knew that in this difficult hour, Jesus would be in his place of prayer. So Judas, verse 3, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So it says a band of soldiers. Some of your translations might say a contingent of soldiers. Some of them might say a cohort. And and, and that word cohort, it's it's a technical term. A cohort in Roman military was one-tenth of a legion. Okay, well, that doesn't help us much, does it? We don't know what a legion is. A legion was 6,000 soldiers. So Judas brought a a cohort, one-tenth of 6,000 soldiers. So that's 600 Roman soldiers he had with him. Plus he had the priests. Plus, he had the officers from the temple. Plus, he had the Pharisees. Plus, he had a bunch of servants. So, there's possibly up to 700 men walking up this hill, torches blazing, lanterns glowing, weapons drawn, right? They all show up here at Gethsemane. And think about this. You're in a garden on top of a hill, and you have 700 men walking up the hill with armor and swords clanking, torches blazing. You think Jesus knew they were coming? Aside from the divinity aspect, just, do you think, everybody knew that they were coming, right? They they, they could hear the approach. Jesus could have escaped. He could have said, hey, Peter, me over the wall, right, and scurried away. He could have slipped into the scenery like he had done so many times earlier in the Gospels. But he stays. And I think verse 4 gives us a little more insight. It says, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? I hope you see that there. Jesus, fully realized what was about to happen. He knew full well who was coming, when they were coming, and why they were coming. He knew in totality all of the events that were about to transpire. He knew when his trial would be held. He knew what the verdict was going to be, and he stayed right there so that he could fulfill the Father's plan of redemption. And so Judas shows up here, 600 men in tow. And remember in Luke, Judas told the priest, he says, listen, the one that I kiss on the cheek, that's the one you need to arrest. And so Judas arrives. The scene begins to unfold. The betrayer comes forward. He gives Jesus a little peck on the cheek, indicating that he was the one to take into custody. And Jesus steps forward to the guards. And he says, "Who are you guys looking for?" And, and 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 I love the next couple verses. This is one of my favorite couple verses in all of Scripture. I, I love seeing the man that Jesus was. I love seeing his character. I love seeing his his courage and his and his bravery in, in the face of danger. And this is a man that that I could follow into battle. This is a man you could follow in in, in the face of death. Six hundred armed men with trigger fingers or sword fingers, whatever the case may be, torches blazing, and Jesus boldly steps up to them. And I imagine his voice ringing clear across the garden. No fear in his voice, no hesitation, no quiver. He says, who are you looking for? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Now, in the Greek, Jesus answers in two words. He says, Ego Ime, I am. That word, he, most of your Bibles will have that in italics. That was something that the tra- translators added later to kind of help bring some clarity. But Jesus says, Who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, Ego Ime, I am. It seems straightforward to us. But there's so much more under the surface of those two words. Jesus is doing so much more than telling them where he is. He's he's telling them and telling us who he is. I am. That's a clear reference to Exodus. Remember the story of, of Moses in the burning bush. Moses is out there, and and he encounters this tree that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And this tree begins to speak to Moses, and he says, Moses, I I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to tell the Pharaoh that it's it's time to let my people go. And Moses says, "Well, well, listen, you're a burning bush, and I'm an outlaw. I'm a fugitive. Who should I say sent me? If I go tell them a burning bush sent me, yeah there was something burning there, smoking a little burning bush and so the Lord says to him, tell them, I Asher I sent you, I am that I am. Tell them that the I am has sent you, that the all-sufficient, all-powerful ever existing God has sent you until Jesus here In the garden, some 3,000 years later, somewhere around there. He says, ego ame, which is the Greek translation of that Hebrew phrase, ayar, asher, ayar, I am. Jesus here is making this clear claim that he is God. He's letting the soldiers and the priests and Judas know exactly what they're doing from this point forward. Ego ame, I am. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus says, who are you looking for? They say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And what happens? They collapse in the presence of the Lord before his authority and majesty and divinity and power. And if I could pick one scene to instant replay and watch again, it might be this scene right here. The I am is here. Full authority, full divinity. And his voice, two words, knocks down 600 men. Look what Paul tells the church in, in Philippi. If he, uh, Philippians chapter two verse eight, and being found in human form, talking about Jesus obviously, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's the deal, Paul says. Every knee will bow to Jesus Christ. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It's not a question of if. It's a question of when. It's a matter of timing. We can bow now for salvation or we can bow later at judgment day for damnation. We can freely confess now and receive forgiveness, or we can say, uncle, then, when we don't have a choice, when it's too late. The Old Testament uses this term, talking about people like this. It calls them stiff-necked people. And I like that description, stiff-necked, stubborn, refusing to submit. I think I told you a a while ago about this dog that I used to have. His name was Moses. And um, he was beautiful. He was this big bull mastiff, gorgeous, sweet, loving dog, dumb as a rock. Stupidest dog I've ever owned, hands down. Absolutely stupid. And so I tried to teach this dog how to walk on a leash. And, you know, I've had a lot of German shepherds and stuff, and usually it takes about two or three minutes. And they're out there trotting, happy to be out. This dog was so stubborn. I put the leash on him, and we had a little kind of like dirt road in front of our house, and, and I would try walking him, and he'd put his feet out, stiff his neck up, and I would like drag him along. And, and I did this for days, and I would try it, and he'd finally he'd just fall over. And I'd try I'm going to win this. This is a battle of the wills. This is a dog versus me. I shall win this battle. And so I'm kind of walking, dragging, and he's falling over, and eventually he started. <coughs> He starts like foaming and I realized that that dog would die before he walked in that leash. And he never learned to walk on a leash. Never did. Stupidest dog I ever had. But that, that's stiff-necked. And that's how so many people are in relation to the Lord. The Lord's moving in their lives. The Lord's speaking. They they feel the the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Things are going on. And sometimes we get so stiff-necked and rebellious that we refuse to hear from the Lord. We refuse to submit. And you can rest assured, eventually you will submit to the Lord. Eventually, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's either in salvation or damnation. The choice is ours. So Jesus asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus asked them again. And and this is where the instant replay would come in handy. Are they still on the ground? Have Have they gotten back up yet? Jesus says, who are you looking for? And I kind of wonder how they said it. Jesus of Nazareth. A little hesitation the second time, maybe. When I was uh, much younger, framing houses, you know, it rains a lot in the winter here at Seattle. And, you know, my first year framing, I think it was like 1996. I remember that it rained 98 days in a row, 98 days of measurable precipitation. And, and of course, if you're going to work in construction in Seattle, you have to work when it rains, or you just don't get to work all winter. And and so, you know, we'd be outside and we have skill saws and stuff going, and um and of course you've got cords out and they're getting wet, so the, the breaker's constantly tripping. And so we were young and, and stupid. And so what we would do is we would, I know some of you guys, two electricians are gonna cringe at this, we'd just break off the ground plugs. And um, and, and it was great because the the breaker never tripped. But once in a while, you'd pick up the saw, and it'd it, it give you a good little shock. And so there was always, a, you'd try to, you know, kick it, knock the water off, and there's always a little hesitation next time you pulled the trigger. And we kind of like to play jokes, and so when we found the saw that was shocking people, the new guy always had to all of a sudden cut something. Hey, go cut me a block. I need a bird block. Like, and then we, I can't, we, yeah, we We pretend to be mad and yell at him. I don't care, cut it, you know, just, just to watch this whole thing unfold. But anyway, anyway, you know, there's a little hesitation there. And and I imagine it was sort of the same situation here, right? And the second time when Jesus asked, who are you looking for? And they reply, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I imagine there wasn't that same degree of, you know, have pride and arrogance. I imagine there's a little bit of hesitation there, wasn't there? They got knocked backwards by the authority of his voice the first time. Tell me who you're looking for again. Jesus, the same guy we were looking for earlier. Something else to note. They said, we're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene. And, of course, we know that Jesus wasn't born in Nazareth. His family wasn't from Nazareth, really. And and Nazareth was really a a kind of a backwater, out-of-the-way area. It's an area that nobody really wanted to be from. And so when they're calling him Jesus the Nazarene or Jesus of Nazareth, it's really a a, a little bit of a, a dig at his family heritage. They're calling him that, and he accepts it. I'm Jesus of Nazareth. And I mention that because in that region, in the Middle East, Christians in the Arab world today are often referred to as Nazarani, it, that word Nazarene. And oftentimes, in times of persecution, the, 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 recently, in fact, in Iraq, when ISIS came through, they would make this Arabic symbol for in on the homes and businesses of the Christians, that they were Nazarani, they were followers of, of, of the Nazarene, much like, much like in Nazi Germany in the 30s and the 40s, remember the Jews had that star of David painted on their businesses and they had to wear patches, it was similar for believers even, even now in the Middle East, and what was intended to be a, 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 a derogatory thing, it became sort of a, a, a badge of honor, a, a rallying point for Christians. We are followers of of the Nazarani, of of, of the Nazarene. So here in verse 8, Jesus says, yeah, I'm, I'm the Nazarene. Jesus answered them. He says, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Look at this exchange here. It's pretty clear who's in charge, isn't it? Jesus stands before them, if they've even gotten back up off the ground yet. And he says this, he says, since you came for me, you're going to let these people go. There was no negotiating, There's no, well, if I surrender, will you let my disciples go? There was none of that. He tells them, he commands them. He says, this is what's going to happen. I am going to go with you, and my disciples are going to go free. You're going to let these guys go. This was fulfilled, verse 9, but this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of these whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Remember, Jesus talked about this a couple times already. He says, Father, you've given me this man. And while they're with me, they're under my supernatural divine protection. I have kept them safe up till now. Then, verse 10, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut his ear off. The servant's name was Malchus. This is one of the reasons why I love Peter. He's he's always ready for a fight, isn't he? Six, seven hundred armed men, trained soldiers, battle-hardened soldiers. And Peter pulls out his sword and starts swinging. And and I want to be clear here as we're talking about Peter pulling out his sword. This wasn't a big... Conan the Barbarian sword, right? It wasn't even one of the little Roman swords. Most likely, it's probably more accurate to think of it as a machete, right? He's a fisherman. He doesn't have military-grade weapons. He's got a machete with him. And And he pulls that thing out. And listen, Peter is wrong here in what he does. But his heart, I think, is in the right place. He's wrong, and he's trying to stop the plan of God for the salvation of all of humanity. But he wanted to protect his friend Jesus. And he was willing to lay down his life and fight for his friend. 12 against 700. And we learn a couple of interesting things here. First, Peter's a terrible swordsman. Right? You've heard the expression, you know, we're going to go take some heads. Nobody says we're going to take some ears. Right? He missed. And the second thing that's interesting is almost everybody, almost exclusively in those days, people were right-handed. Just like in our, I'm left-handed, a lot of the church staff is actually left-handed. But in our recent past, right, if you were left-handed, what happened? You became right-handed, right? You tried to write with your left hand, the teacher would smack you with a ruler, right? And you had to learn to become right-handed. So everybody was right-handed. So Peter, he's holding a sword in his right hand and he chops off the ear, the right ear of Malchus. So think of it. He pulls it up. How does he get it up and around and back down and cut the ear off without the head? Here's the probable solution. Malchus was trying to run away. right? He he did it from behind. And that, he's running, Peter just starts, waving that machete around. And that's the first thing that it catches. You know, it hits him on the ear. And poor Malchus. He's probably the only guy that didn't want to be there, right? Soldiers were soldiers. They're trained for conflict. The priests and the Pharisees, they had a reason to be there. They had a, a, they had a vested interest in going there. Poor Malchus, he's a servant. He didn't want to go. He got dragged along. And he gets his ear chopped off bad day for the poor guy. Peter here, when trouble comes, whenever Peter's backed into a corner, God, he just comes out swinging. Hey, if it were me in this situation, I'd be looking for a drain pipe that all the disciples could crawl through, a easy escape. But you know, when I was young, I was kind of an idiot. And, and I got into a little bit of trouble just because I had a big mouth and I I know that's hard to imagine, and I, and I never wanted to back down. I was kind of impulsive, and so I can kind of understand where Peter's coming from here. And now, to be clear, Peter is wrong, right? Peter is acting in the flesh. Peter is not behaving as he should have, but what does Jesus do? Jesus says, Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter, put away your sword. This is all part of the Father's plan. This is why I came, Peter. This is why I'm here. And as we said so many times, and we're going to say so many more times in the coming weeks and months, the plan was always for Jesus to die. It's why he came. He came to this earth for one purpose. He came to die. He came to give his life as ransom for many. And we have to understand that as this tragedy is about to unfold, the torture and the, and the crucifixion, it was always the plan. As we saw last week in Revelation, before creation, from before the foundations of the earth, the Lamb of God was slain to take away the sins of the world. In Matthew 26, 52, it says, Jesus says, Put away your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So Jesus says, Peter, put your weapon away. Put your sword away. He says, if I wanted to, Peter, I could call down 12 legions of angels. And we just saw that a legion was what? 6,000. 72,000 angels, Jesus says. I could speak and they'd be right here. And you remember in the Old Testament what one angel did when he swept through the armies of the Lord's enemies. He says, I can call down 72,000 angels right now. And I imagine if you could kind of pull back the sheets and if you could look into the spiritual world I imagine all those angels were right there, hands on their swords. Say the word, Jesus. Just say the word, we're ready, Jesus. But Jesus says, look, if I'm delivered from this, how would scripture be fulfilled? How would I suffer and die for my people? This is the plan of God, Peter. This has to happen. This is my cup to drink. This is what the Father has laid before me. And that's an interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? An interesting choice of words. This is my cup to drink. Because remember, just minutes before, he says, Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. You see this change in Jesus' heart now, right? He says, this is my cup to drink. He's embraced what the Father sent him to do. And we learn from Luke, and remember Luke was a medical doctor, and he gives us this note. After Peter chops off the ear of Malchus, remember what Jesus does? We don't see it in John's gospel, we see it in Luke's gospel. He picks it up, and he puts it back on, and he heals him. Now it's interesting, John is the only one who records that it was Peter who chopped off the ear. Remember Peter and John have this little rivalry going. right And so so he makes special note. this is Peter that did this. But why? why did why did Jesus heal Malchus's ear? Well for one thing, I think if he hadn't, there would have been four crosses the next morning. Peter would have been up there as well. but it's a little hard, to convict a man for chopping off somebody's ear when the guy still has his ear, isn't it? And you can imagine that, Peter's trial. You know, Peter cut my ear off. Which one? This one, right? He turned me into a newt. I got better. little reference some of you guys got there. <laughs> it's just clicking for those of you guys who, who got it. <laughs> but It's an interesting picture here. An interesting lesson the last thing that we see Jesus doing here is repairing the damage that one of his followers did. He's repairing the wounds inflicted by a believer swinging his sword. I wonder how many people have been hurt by Christians with good intentions. How many people in this room have been hurt by Christians with good intentions? by believers who are thinking they're doing the right thing. They're not walking in the spirit. They're not spirit-led. And and they end up causing pain, causing emotional and spiritual wounds. They're they're swinging their sword. They're throwing out Bible verses, but they're doing it wrongly. And Jesus sees that. And and he wants to heal. And he wants to bring restoration and, and wholeness and completion to our lives. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And just to be clear here, Jesus let them tie him up, right? I can imagine as they're binding his hands. Is that too tight, sir? Are you okay? (laughs) A little hesitation there. But in the Old Testament, whenever an animal is going to be sacrificed, remember they, they bound that animal up and tied it to the altar. So it's significant here that Jesus is being bound as he's being led away to sacrifice. But it wasn't like they wrestled him to the ground and put handcuffs on. Jesus goes willingly. I mean, just moments before, he knocked them all down with two words. And it reminds me a little bit of of, of Samson in the book of Judges. Before the, the whole Delilah cut my hair, what's the word? situation right before all that there was an instance where where the israelites were or the, yeah the israelites were angry with samson because he kept stirring up trouble with the philistines and so they wanted to turn samson over to the philistines but they couldn't but samson said all right just for the sake of peace tie me up so he let them tie him up and sent send him off to the philistines but he could have broken those bound bonds at, at any time that he chose And likewise, Jesus here, he could have spoken a word and the bonds would have just fallen off. They would have disintegrated. They would have burned up like Shadrach's bonds in the furnace. There's nothing that they could have done to hold Jesus if he didn't want to be held. Just like on the cross, there's nothing that they could have done to keep Jesus nailed to that cross if he didn't want to be on the cross. It wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was his love for you that held him to the cross. It wasn't those ropes that bound him. It was his submission to the Father and his love for us that bound him as he was led away to be sacrificed. First, verse 13, they led him to Ananias, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. So this character here, Ananias, He's a former high priest. He'd retired from the high priesthood, and he ran some businesses. And it was really, it was extortion. What would happen is the people would would bring their their offerings to the temple to be sacrificed. And, of course, remember, the the offerings had to be perfect. They had to be spotless. They had to be without blemish. Whenever the people would bring in their sacrifice, Ananias' workers would always, oh, that one's got a little mange. That one, this. That one's got a short leg. Look at that ear. It's a little small. Right? They'd always find some reason to disqualify the sacrifices the people bought. But they'd be, oh, it's okay. We have one right here that you can buy for a convenient, for a convenience fee, right? For a little, a little markup. And this went on for a while. And he made millions of shekels, I guess it would be. Right? He was a very rich man because of this extortion. But remember, one day, not long before, or yet not long before this, Jesus comes into the temple. Actually, twice he does it, kicking over the money, the money changers' tables, and, and driving out the sacrifices. Directly affecting Ananias's business here, and so Ananias, he's already got something in, against Jesus, and so they lead Ananias to Jesus. And at this point, Ananias is already retired, but his son-in-law, Cephas, is the high priest. But everybody knows that Ananias is, he's the real power player at this point. He's He's the man behind the curtain. He's the one who calls the shots, and everybody knows it. And verse 14 says, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. He's kind of taking us back to chapter 11 here. Remember, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and and multitudes of people were putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And so all the priests, remember, they called this meeting. They said, what are we going to do? What are we going to do about this Jesus character? He's working these signs and wonders, and and there's no way we can deny it, and and, and it's causing this commotion, revolution, and soon Rome was going to come in and take over. But one of them, verse 49, chapter 11, verse 49, So Caiaphas, he stands up and he says, listen, guys, it's better for this one guy, Jesus, to die than the whole nation to be destroyed. In his mind, he's he's speaking about the Romans, and he didn't realize that he was speaking prophetically. He didn't realize that the Lord was speaking through him, that Jesus would give his life for the Jewish people and not for the Jewish people only but for all of God's people around the globe. One man died to save all of humanity. And as we move through the next couple chapters, chapter 18, chapter 19, chapter 20, we're going to see this this drama unfold. We're going to see the trial and the torture, the execution, the death of Jesus. And the burial. And finally the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All for one purpose. To bring about the salvation of lost men. And this is going to be our theme for the next couple months. The salvation of lost men. That Jesus died for you. That Jesus died to save you from the consequences of your sins. He died to save us from an eternity separated from the Father. And it's my prayer over the coming weeks and months that those who don't know the Lord would come to know Him before the end of this section of Scripture. It's my prayer that you would do it today. Stop stop being stiff-necked. Stop being so rebellious and surrender your life to the Lord if you never have. If you've never formally repented of your sins, call on the name of the Lord. Ask him to save you and be set free from the bondage of your sin. I do it this morning. Amen. Heavenly Father, we look at this passage the ego ame, the I am, Lord. And we're so in awe of your power, and your majesty, and your splendor, Lord. And Father, as we sing these next few songs, we pray that you would work into our hearts, Lord. Work this scripture, work this passage into our hearts. And let us fully grasp the majesty of who you are, and all that you've done for us, Lord. We pray that in your name.